messages, there we go, a uh, new series of messages, and we're on the opposite end of the Bible. We're in the book of Exodus this morning, uh, beginning with chapter 1. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all of that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us de deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for them the store cities of Pithom and Ramses, but even more they were oppressed. And the more that they multiplied and the more that they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their work, bit, their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and bricks and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shipra and the other was Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Well, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for, when they, for they are vigorous and give birth before a midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We ask the Lord to bless his word in our lives. As we take a look at Exodus chapter 1, uh, we'll see what God has for us there. But just as we get started... Uh, for 30 or 40 minutes, I didn't know that we were going to live. Now, I grew up on three different continents, and so because I grew up traveling that much, flying on an airplane was something that I always considered to be far more of an adventure than a fear. But someplace over North Georgia, we hit some turbulence like I had never experienced before. And as much as I like to think about uh, the fact that how safe the planes are, and I like to do the math in my head, you know, how rare it is for a plane to have an accident, and, and understanding that, that I don't know of any stories that a plane has fallen out of the air because of turbulence or anything like that, as much as I want to think logically about all of those things, I was pretty sure that there was no way those wings were going to stay attached much longer. 
And as the intensity of that and the duration of that and as that turbulence made us jump and fall and you could see the worry and the concern, even on the flight attendants and people who had traveled a great deal, you could see that there was a deep sense in my life that said, get me out of here now. Have you ever had one of those, those flights? Uh, that flight was almost 30 years ago, and I still remember it really, really well. When turbulence hits that hard, you know, sometimes turbulence just doesn't hit an airplane. Sometimes turbulence hits life. And what seems like was going along really smoothly and what seemed to be going along just great, all of a sudden you hit a pocket of turbulence. And whether it is a brief pocket or whether it is an extended period of time, you are not sure that those wings are going to hold on much longer. And you are not sure that you're going to make it much longer. And really what you are saying under your breath, over your breath, is somebody get me out of here because I don't know that I can hold on to this much longer. It's interesting as we look at the book of Exodus, it is really a story of a people who hit turbulence. In fact, the book of Exodus is really one of the, the great profound stories of a people who are struggling, the people who are going through difficulties, people who are under incredible adversity. And the book of Exodus is, is the story of how they survive that turbulence. In fact, the book of Exodus, the, the word Exodus means the way out. That, that's the whole story of this book is there is a way out when you are in difficulty, when you are in hardship, when, when you don't know that you can make it any longer, there is a way out. There is an exodus for you. If we take a look at the passage again, I want you to notice a couple of things here as the surprise that comes to the people. Because what I want you to see here is I want you to think that the people thought life was good. That the people thought life was great. If you take a look here at verse 6 in the passage, in verse 7 in the passage, in verse 7 it tells us that the people of Israel were fruitful. It tells us that they increased greatly. It tells us that they multiplied. It tells us that they grew exceedingly, that they were strong, and that the land was filled with them. Everything was going great. All of the signs of blessings were on their life. But then some circumstances changed. It tells us that these are the descendants of Joseph. And Joseph was a national hero. But there came a day in which the people did not remember Joseph. And before you know it, I want you to notice the intensity of these words. Going back to verse 11 it tells us that they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Going into verse 12, it says, the more they oppressed them, the more that they spread abroad and, and more and more. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people, so they were ruthlessly made to work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard surface, service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field, and they made them work ruthlessly to work as slaves. Without question, the people of Israel in that moment had gone from being, we are blessed, we are multiplying, we are, we are so strong, 
to I'm sure that their great word was somebody somehow get us out of here. And the good news this morning is that there is a way out. As we unpack this this morning, uh, I want you to notice a couple things that I think are really important in this passage of Scripture. Uh, the first thing that I want you to notice here, the first thing I want you to know as we study this passage, is that your comforts may be deceiving. Your comforts may be deceiving. Remember we said the front half of this chapter, the front half of this passage of Scripture, they, they were able to say, everything seems great. Everything that we're doing is being successful. Everybody looks at us and is like, wow, what a strong, powerful group of people. They lived in the area that was the, the, the best piece of property in all of Egypt. In a, in a world in which favoritism was government policy, they were the most favored people that there were. They had everything going great for them. And I'm sure that they felt really, really good. In fact, there, there may have even been a sense where they just kind of looked around and saw their own strength and saw how God was multiplying them and saw how many of them they were. They may have even strutted around every once in a while and said, well, look at us. Well, the problem is, is that somebody did. The Egyptians started to look at them. And, and what seemed like a blessing all of a sudden becomes a curse because not, they are not seen for, oh, look how blessed that group of people are. But now the Egyptians looked at them and said, see what kind of a threat they are. Now, just to review how they got to Egypt, they are there because Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was really, really unpopular. His name was Joseph. And the brothers were so upset with Joseph that they sold him into slavery. And as he went into Egypt, he went as a slave and every time something would go well for Joseph, something else would go wrong for Joseph. And the bottom just keeps falling out for Joseph. But God has his hand on Joseph's life and blesses him time and time again until there's a place in which Joseph has a dream and he tells Pharaoh that, listen, life has been good and you are about to have seven of the best years that you have ever had. You are going to have record flocks. You're going to have record everything. Seven years, everything is going to be great. And then he says, for seven years, you're going to have some of the worst years you have ever had. Your crops are going to fail. There's going to be an immense famine in the land. Pharaoh says, well, well what do we do? Joseph says, here's the plan. We take the seven good years so that we can be ready for the seven hard years. And Joseph is put in charge of that plan, and Joseph is able to rescue all of Egypt because of his insight and because Pharaoh trusted him in that process. Now here's the footnote in the story. The famine is so extensive that it impacts Joseph's brothers back home. And they get sent, they get sent by Jacob to Egypt to find food. And the person that they've got to come before to find food is none other than the brother that they sold into slavery. That's a beautiful story of forgiveness and provision as Joseph tests their hearts, but in the end of the day, he forgives them 
for what they've done and said, listen, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And he says, why don't you come and not only eat at this table today, but why don't you come and bring the whole family and I'll find a place for you to stay, I'll find a place for you to live, and you can survive this famine right here in this place. And so that's how the nation, which is really only 70 people, it's all of Jacob and his 12 sons and all of their family and all of the people attached to their family, 70 people arrive there. And when we pick up the story here in Exodus chapter 1, it's 400 years later. Now when I look at this passage of Scripture, one of the things that is just really stuck with me since I first began to look at it. Are they still supposed to be in Egypt? They went to Egypt to survive a seven-year famine. They probably didn't show up on day one of the famine. It might have been a couple of years into the famine. There, there were just a handful of years left in that famine, and they stayed in that place. 400 years later, they are still in Egypt. <laughs> Several years ago when I was in seminary and I was pastoring a church out in the woods of Washington Parish, I was coming back on a Sunday night driving back to New Orleans, and my car broke down in some way in the dark. Back in these days, the only person that had a car phone was the President of the United States. And so I had to find a house to knock on, a stranger's house to knock on, and just to borrow a phone to call a tow truck to tell Susan that I was alive and, and that I would eventually uh, be home. And so th this wonderful lady opened her house and opened the door, and, and I sat at her kitchen table and used her phone and did all these things. We watched the uh, Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley NBA finals together. It was a fantastic uh, time together. She rescued me on that night. But if I was still sitting at her dining room table today, First of all, Susan would have wondered where I was. There would be a question about what happened to the promises, what happened to the relationships, what happened to who you were before that. You see, Egypt was a temporary rescue, just like that kitchen table was a temporary rescue. But if I had moved in and lived there, that would have ignored all the things that God had done in my life as who I was. And so I have concern about the length of time that the people are still there in Egypt. I think that they got comfortable. Joseph says, listen, when I die, this is where I want you to bury me. Take my body, take my bones back to the land. And 400 years later, they are still sitting there. You know what's happening in Canaan, the land that they had been promised, the land that they left? They're building cities. They are building walled cities like Jericho that eventually when they go back home, they are eventually going to have to defeat those large walled cities. In fact, I have to wonder what would have happened if all the things that happened to the Israelites in verse 7, that they grew, they increased, they multiplied. They filled the land. What if all of those things had been happening in Canaan instead of in Egypt? What if when the famine was over, they went back home 
Now, home was difficult. They, they were still a kind of a nomadic tribe going from one place to another, still trying to find a place for their, their, their flocks and the things to graze. It hadn't all been given to them yet, but the promise was there. But in Egypt, they, they found the best land. They found the best places for their flocks. Everything was handed to them. I think one of the problems that we find here in Exodus chapter 1 is I think that they got too comfortable. And because they got too comfortable, they forgot about the promises that God had given to them, the calling that God had given to them. See, sometimes we equate comfort with blessings. When really, sometimes, the comfort is not a blessing, it's a distraction. As I think about the passage, I also think that it's true uh, that sometimes your hardships may be strategic. Your hardships may be strategic. Now, you see, God knows all of these things. And in fact, all the way back to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, the first person of the promise. God had provided a promise to Abraham, and included in that promise was the land, all of Canaan, the promised land. There was also the promise that said, listen, there's going to come a time in which your people go, your, your descendants go down into Egypt, and they will be slaves for 400-something years. Now, I don't necessarily know that that was prescriptive that said, now listen, you have to go to Egypt for 400 years. I think that was descriptive that said, they're going to be in slavery longer than they need to be, but I will rescue them. But either way, they're on the other side of 400 years, and nobody's packing a suitcase. Nobody is saying, it's time to go. This is the time that Abraham was promised that we're supposed to go back to, to Canaan. Let's get our stuff together. Let's, let's pick up and let's leave. Even when the times got difficult, they were planted in that place because I think that they were afraid to do anything different than what they'd always done. You see, one of the things the passage tells us is that there came a time in which Pharaoh did not remember Joseph. But I think that forgetfulness was on both sides. I'm not sure how much the people of Israel remembered Joseph. I'm not sure how much the people of Israel remembered the promises of God, that they had an inheritance that belonged to them that was in a completely different place, and they were on this borrowed land when God had given them a promise of a promised land. Not only that, but they stopped having a hunger. They stopped seeking after the things of God. If you go book, back and look at the book uh, of Genesis, we look at the patriarchs, those initial people of the promise, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In those three generations, there were constant interactions with God, even to the place that Jacob wrestles hand-to-hand -hand with God. That's how close their interaction and their encounters with God. There were visions. There, there were times in which God spoke. There were times that God visited with them. And for 400 years, it's silent. 
And I'm not sure that anybody even noticed anymore. Because they had a good plot of land where they were. They, they lost their hunger. They, they, they lost their desire. They, they, they lost track of, of what it could be when God spoke to them. But because of God's great love, He was going to reawaken them so that He could fulfill His promises, so that He could place them back in the promised land. You ever have to wake up somebody who's a heavy sleeper? I think one day we're going to have a fire at the house and we're going to end up in the emergency room and they're going to, uh, I'm going to have a broken arm. And they're saying, you, you got the broken arm in the fire? And she's like, no, the broken arm was me trying to wake them up to tell them that there was a fire. Uh, sometimes it's hard to wake somebody up. I think that the people of Israel had been asleep so long and that their slumber had been so deep that it was going to take an awful lot to wake them up. And so what we find here in these verses 11 through 14 is these intense words about a bitter life, about hardship, and about ruthlessness. I want you to know, first of all, it was injustice, and it was wrong, and it was hard. But I also want you to know, it was also the act of God waking that people I think sometimes we may be facing difficulties, we may be facing hardships, and I'm not saying even that the hardships are fair or right or good, that they could be very much wrong, but they also can very much be something that God is doing to waken you up to the next thing that He wants to do inside of your life, that there is a next step, there is a next life. You are not supposed to be resting where you were. You're not supposed to be still at that kitchen table of rescue that you used to be. You're not supposed to be in Egypt that is supposed to be saving you from a seven-year famine, and you've been there 400 years. There is an awakening that even though this is hard and ruthless and life is bitter, it is for the sole purpose of moving you to where you're supposed to be. There's one more thing that I really love about this passage of Scripture, and that is that your rescue, that your rescue may be surprising. Your rescue may be surprising. The hardship, the injustice, the, the, the entire power of the state being against the Israelites. This statement that says that they are going to eradicate every male child that the Israelites have. Someone is going to have to stand up. Someone is going to have to provide a rescue. Someone out of this great nation is supposed to be the answer to this situation. If you had guessed it was going to be the midwives, well, then you cheated and looked at the answer key. I think the midwives would have been one of the most overlooked people in the population. They were these women. Sometimes they, they, they may have been women who, who had this role because they did not have children of their own. And because they did not have children of their own, sometimes people must have thought, well, there must be something wrong with them. At this point, God hasn't blessed them in that way. I don't know about those folks. 
And so they were an incredibly overlooked population. The Egyptians never really would have worried about them. The Israelites never would have looked at them and said, now there goes a hero. But not only were they overlooked, but they were strategically placed at the very point of danger. Nobody was paying attention to them. And so when this word comes that the, the children, the male children of the Israelites were supposed to be eradicated at birth, who is there to rescue the day? It is the midwives. Overlooked, and yet God has placed them in the exact spot to make a difference in their lives. I would tell you that it is quite possible that there is a midwife that you have not seen that is present that God has sent into your life that may be overlooked but is perfectly and strategically placed for the needs that you have in your life. Because God is at work like that. But here's the other thing. You might be the midwife. You might be the midwife for somebody else that, that you were so overlooked that you have overlooked yourself. You, you overlook yourself when you're standing in the mirror. But God has placed you in a place that no one else is with the same resources that nobody else has. He has placed you in that moment. Now, nobody would have guessed the midwife. But I love the idea of the midwives whose very job it is to assist in delivery. That these are the people that God first began to use to begin his deliverance for the people of God. So what does this mean for us this morning? How does this apply to our lives this morning? Well, one of the things that I would ask you about is, is there a promise? Is there a commitment? Is there a calling on your life that you have forgotten about? That in the comfort of so many of the other things that have happened in your life, in the comfort of the routine and the predictable, that you have forgotten about a calling, a commitment, or a promise that's in your life that needs to be awakened anew today. The second thing I would say is, is your life bitter? I don't mean just angry, but just hard. That, that, that you take a breath and it's bitter. I don't think that there's any question that we have people in this room that would be in a season that would be described that they are facing some stuff that's ruthless, hard, heavy, and life is bitter in these days. I want you to know that even when life isn't working, God is. And I want you to know that there is a midwife that God has sent for your deliverance, even in a circumstance that seems so hard right now. He has sent a deliverance. 
That doesn't mean it's all going to be cushy. We've got a few more chapters to go here, and you're going to see that it's not all cushy. But the active, present God has a deliverance for your life. And then I would say to you that there was a heroic response from the midwives who were pressured to do one thing, but they knew that that wasn't right. And that knew, they knew that that wasn't what God had for them. You, you may be in a circumstance in your job or in your family or you're in your friend's circle or whatever it may be that you're feeling some pressure to do something other than what you know God has called for your life to be. And I would encourage you to stand firm just like those midwives did because God sees, God will strengthen God will bless and honor you as you stand firm in those places. We're going to pray, and in just a moment, I invite you to respond 